Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. Good morning, church. I have the pleasure of reading the scripture today. Uh, The scripture is found in Matthew 4, verses 18 to 25. It is the passage where Jesus calls his first disciples, and it is the beginning of his uh, ministry years. As Jesus was walking uh, walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so we asked a bunch of people in the subway what they thought their purpose in life was. Um, it's a part of this series called Frequently Asked Questions. And Dave and I were joking this week, we should have called it Infrequently Asked Questions because it seems like no one's asking these questions. You may have been like, I don't go around asking what my purpose in life is. Um, and these are often questions, we, but if we called it Infrequently Asked Questions, I mean, nobody would come, right? Nobody clicks on that link, uh, except they especially bored. Uh, oh yeah, junior high, you guys can have your class. <laughs> Some of you are like, what, we can just leave? I didn't know. <laughs> you can, you can. Part of, uh, you know, our, our goal in this series is to say there's actually questions that, um, that are really important that we're asking all the time. Questions like, hey, last week we talked about where did we come from? Um, today we're talking about why are we here, what is our purpose in life? Um, you know, what's wrong with the world? How are things going to get better? Where do I go when I die? What happens after I die? And you may say, well, I don't really, and I actually ask those questions a lot. In fact, I was, the last couple of days, I was in Kingston for my uh, 20th homecoming, and there was about 50 of my Commerce 98 class that hung out together. So last, they're fascinated that I have left business and become a pastor, so they say, well, like, what are you doing tomorrow? What are you preaching on? So I said, well, I'm preaching on, like, what is my purpose? And they're like, oh. Make sure you tell them we said that. I said, okay, I will. Because I think it's one of those things you're like, why why do people recoil when you think like, oh, what is my purpose in life? Maybe it's because it's sort of a question that's a little bit haunting, as in, is there really an answer to that? Like, that's kind of a big question. And if there is an answer, I'm probably misaligned (laughs) with that answer. Like, does that mean I'm going to have to change something, or it's this specific capital P purpose, and am I missing it right now? And maybe that's because partly we often feel that. We may not ask the question, why am I here? You know, what is my purpose in life? But we ask things like, you know, how long do I have to do this job for? Or we ask things like, um, you know, I, I think we're in love, but should we get married? Um, 
how come it seems like we never quite have enough money? Why am I, why am I always chasing the next thing? We ask questions like, should I, should I leave this job? Should I get another one? What should I um, imagine my retirement will be? Will it be as good as I hope it will be or everyone's telling me it will be? Those are actually all questions of purpose. Like, where am I headed? And, and is there meaning in these things? And even though we may say inside, oh, I'm not sure, like, that's a big question I can't answer, right? we're actually asking it all the time because in between and, and threaded through every decision we consider in life and relationships and school and money and sex and jobs and can I smoke weed now that I'm allowed to smoke weed now, these are actually all questions of purpose. What am I doing in this world? What does my life count for or mean? Am I accountable to anyone for it? Where am I going? Ravi Zacharias said it this way. He said in our need for purpose, in the corporate world, listen to this, in the corporate world, every major company formulates a mission statement. That, in turn, is invoked when measuring achievements or failures. If a company does not know why it exists, then it will never know if it is failing or succeeding. How indicting, then, to all of us who will labor for hours to establish a mission statement for a company, to sell toothpicks or tombstones, but never pause long enough to write one for ourselves? Why are we so eager to prove to the world we are the best at what we do and care not for why or who we are? This question of purpose is really essential. It is a question we are asking all the time and maybe you're saying, really, you're going you're gonna to tell me that today? It was a good day to come to church. Is there such a thing? We're actually, and, and in this series, what we're doing is we ask these questions. We're looking at how do the different worldviews or religions think about this? And the reason I say worldviews is some are religions, some are worldviews, but all of them are really perspectives of the way that the lens through which I look at the world. And how do the various worldviews and religions answer this, and what does Jesus have to say? And you might say, well, why are we, why is this isn't like a religions 101 class, and that's definitely true. However, we live in a culture, like in the most pluralistic and multicultural city in the world. And so the people you uh, live next to, go to school with, um, hang out with, work with, married to, in extended family with, are from and are shaped by the different worldviews and perspectives and religions in the world. And so if we're actually really going to learn how to live in harmony and unity with one another, this whole matter of interfaith dialogue, like learning how to have conversations with people that doesn't lead to hate or conflict or alienation, but saying, oh, I want to understand you more. It's actually an essential part of what it means to be, I think, a human in our city, in our country, in this day and time. You might say, okay, well, why, what about Jesus? Like, if you're here and you're saying, I'm not a follower of Jesus, why does he get the last word? Well, part of what we said was a couple weeks ago, Jesus categorically positioned himself outside of religion altogether. That his perspective on it was to came to actually, to end religion, you don't need religion anymore, you have me. That's a bold claim. And so we want to know, well, what does he actually say about our purpose in life? And the interesting thing is Jesus actually had a lot to say about our purpose. It's something, though, I feel like in many respects, the church for many years has just largely ignored. Um, and I think as we begin to understand how his words and his life, what he taught and what he did, are meant to shape so much of who we are, it actually takes this big kind of 
question of meaning and purpose and, and brings it right down to the everyday, your life and my life. And my hope is that a few moments from now, in a little while, you would leave here feeling like, I think I get it a bit more. I think I know what this might mean for my life. And, and the, the whole question of purpose actually begins with, at least in Matthew's gospel that um, Martin read for us, that uh, is one of the biographies of Jesus, recorded as uh, really the very first thing that Jesus began to say when he began to say anything that was worth writing down, right? First 30 years of his life, he was a carpenter. Nobody thought, that's special. Let's write that down. They, now they wish they would have kept the tables, right? Like imagine eBay would just explode. This, Jesus made this table. I'm sure there's stuff out there. Um, but they didn't know. And then, but then as he began to teach and they began to understand who he was, they said, what did he say? What did he say? And they went back and they said, okay, this is what he began to say first. Listen to this. From that time on, what time on? That's the time that Jesus began to have a public ministry. He began to preach. Repent, which is, just means turn around. Change your mind, look over here, not over there, change your way of thinking, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. If you want to distill this whole matter of the kingdom and what Jesus said about it to one word, I want this matter of purpose, spoiler, it is the word kingdom. And Jesus said, it says Jesus began to teach the good news of the kingdom. That our quest for purpose and meaning and understanding why we're on this earth and where it is we're meant to go is wrapped up in this idea of kingdom. And it was the very first thing that Jesus began to teach and say and live. Now, even as I say that, you may have one of two reactions. One is kingdom, that's just an old word. I don't like, you know, sort of... Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, stuff comes to mind, castles, like it's, a, it's from a, a, a period in history gone by that's not relevant. Or you may say, oh, see, that is the problem with religion. Kingdom, politics, power, the knights, the feudal system, everything. That's, this is, so whatever is coming up for you when I say that word, can I just ask you to just take it and put it beside you for a moment and just set it aside. And what Understand, what did Jesus mean, and why was the kingdom good news? The word good news is actually the word that we, that is, um, trans, what the word uh, gospel is translated, or in the Greek word euangelion. So we say what the gospel is, the good news. Jesus said there's a good news, the good news of the kingdom. This is the gospel that Jesus began to preach. And so this is the gospel according to Jesus. What is the good news of the kingdom. Why is it good news to you and to me? Interestingly, the Jewish audience that he was speaking to, what they would have heard would something inside that would make them go, yes, yes. Because for them, the kingdom was the answer to their problem, their, all of their problems. They were presently, when Jesus began to talk to them, under the rule of Rome, which was the fourth kingdom Babylon, Persia, uh, the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great, and then Rome. The fourth empire that had ruled them, and, and Rome, they said, taxed them up to 90 to 95%. Rome ruled with an iron fist. And so um, economically and politically, they were oppressed. Their religion was not given um, the blessing of, of freedom, uh, to, 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 and, and they were very sort of marginalized in their religion. And so 
politically and ethnically and religiously they were oppressed. And so the answer to all of this was the kingdom. They were waiting for a king who would come and first thing he would do is get an army together and go and kick Rome out, kick out Herod, the puppet Jewish king that Rome had said, here's your Jewish king, and he was not. Herod was sort of in it for himself. He had no care for the Jewish faith or the people themselves. And then they would go and be able to have again their ethnic um, identity reestablished, their political independence given back, and their religious freedom. And so when Jesus begins to talk about the kingdom, inside them is like they are getting so amped up. And then he goes and actually starts to call followers, which is good because it's like that's exactly what you need to do. You need to get an army together. And it says a couple of his followers were actually what, if we were negative about them, we would call them terrorists. If we were positive, we would call them freedom fighters. So Simon the Zealot, okay, the Zealots were freedom fighters. They, would, they, they believed in this political, religious, ethnic independence from Rome. And so very often the zealots would go out as bands of kind of freedom fighters and go and try to take down Roman guards and centurions and, and, and actually use physical force against Roman occupation. And so Simon the Zealot, I'm sure Simon Peter was like, hey, make sure you say the Zealot. Like, it's not me, it's him, right? But there was, so he had some of these guys who were freedom fighters who followed him. Judas Iscariot, even his last name Iscariot, they think comes from the Sicarii, right? Which, you know, if you saw Sicario, whatever the, it's like the movie, but it's basically like the idea is that the Sicarii comes from the Sicarii, which is the dagger, and these were the hitmen. And so they would hide daggers in their cloaks and they would go and kill Roman soldiers whenever they had the chance because they believed in the whole idea of the Jewish kingdom. And so Jesus is starting to bring these followers together and a couple of them are like, we know what this is and we are so in. Now before you kind of dismiss their thinking as like archaic or barbaric, um, in a sense, we actually see this um, in, in, in Christendom still. There is thinking even in, and, uh, if you look at some of the political wars that we even see south of the border and some of the language that you hear coming from Christian churches or maybe even in our own uh, country or maybe you felt like this, hey, like we need Christian government, right? Like we need people back in power who are gonna, I can't believe they're legalizing marijuana. I can't believe they're doing it. We need Christians back in power. We're losing our place in society. We have to stand up for what's right and for what we believe in. And then enmeshed in that, oftentimes there's this idea of like, um, you know, political or military or lining up national allegiances with Christian allegiances. And so we can actually see, yeah, the, this idea of kingdom, you know, it's actually not f as far away from us as we think. It is kind of how we tend to think about these things sometimes. And even if you think about uh, the relig religion of Islam, to call Islam a religion is actually under-describing it. It is probably better described as a geopolitical movement. It is a movement that believes that what the world needs is Islam as the faith and Sharia as the law. And that as state and faith or state and church or state and mosque in a sense come together, then we will have the one world order that we need. It is, it is a belief in that. Um, Graham, uh, Graham Wood who is uh, written for The Atlantic and The Wall Street Journal um, and has done a number of uh, highly risky investigative pieces. If you read some of his work, it's just stunning what he's done in the name of journalism to try to get into the places of the world that you and I would be running from. And he, d he wrote probably one of the landmark pieces, at least in The Atlantic, on ISIS uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and one of the things that uh, they asked him after he had done his piece and he had managed to meet with some of the ISIS leaders, they said, how, 
how are they able to recruit young people? Like, it seems like such a crazy thing they're inviting them into. And his answer was, it, is, it all comes down to purpose. He said, if you think about it in London, for example, one of the places that ISIS is recruiting, he said, ISIS just taps into the description of daily life, and they say to a young 20-year-old man, do you want your life to be going to a local fish and chip shop watching football? Or do you want it to be in this incredibly meaning-rich environment engaged in this apocalyptic battle? It is a question of purpose and higher purpose that lest we quickly judge it and say, oh, that's not right. That there is something in them that says, is this all there is? Coming and going? And maybe you've said that to yourself about your life, about your job, or about the football games that we watch. Is this all that life is? And ISIS understands and believes, no, there is this apocalyptic battle where Allah needs to be king and the world needs to be conformed to it. Now, there are many Muslims who would look at ISIS and say that's, they don't agree with that. And that's not my understanding of Islam. But built into the religion itself is this idea of, of king and God, of state and church or religion coming together. And so we can see it in Islam, we can see it even, in a sense, in the Christian religion, and of course the Jews then, and th actually throughout history, this is what the church has been doing, fighting for political, ethnic, and religious power. And so as Jesus says the word kingdom, this is coming up in them. And so we can say, okay, ISIS, that's what they're doing, that's what they believe. Is that what Jesus taught? Because a lot of Christians think that's what he was saying or at least that seems to be what we do. And yet, if you continue to read how Jesus explained the kingdom, look what he says. Someone actually asked him about it. Once, on being asked by the Pharisees, when would the kingdom of God come? In other words, is this happening? Jesus replied, listen to this, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. What did he mean by that? First of all, he says, the way you're thinking about kingdom is not what I'm talking about. You can't touch it and see it like a military standard or a palace or something that's physical or has to do with what the way we see kingdom in this world. He said, someone will say, is that it? Is that it? He said, you're not going to recognize it. It doesn't look like that. And then he says, it's actually in your midst. What did he mean by that? And it's sort of a double meaning. Because earlier, uh, as I read, he said the kingdom of God is here or at hand. It was his way of saying, I am the kingdom. Like, look at me. The kingdom of God is in your midst. But the other way to understand that in the Greek translation is the kingdom of God, he's saying, is in you. It's not out there in this external thing. It actually comes from the heart. It's actually something that is so tied to the way you think and the way you feel and your motivations and everything that comes out of the human heart. And saying the kingdom of God is in you, I believe part of what he's saying is you were made in the image of the king. You were made in the image of God. It is in you. And then he goes on, right, when he's about to die, and Pilate, who's the Roman procurator who was in charge of Roman occupation in that area, hears that he's being accused of being a king, which is a bad thing because that means sort of riots, and, you know, and so he's questioning him on this and saying, are you really a king? And here's what Jesus says to him. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. 
bit by bit, we're starting to understand more about the kingdom. It's not something you can see and touch that looks like military power or political independence or ethnic identity or religious freedom. It is something that is in me and it's in you to live. And he says, it's not of this world. At which point we might say, oh yeah, like he's just talking about kind of inner peace and sort of what's going on inside of us and, and, and you know, just that, that it's, it's, not, it's not of this world. And it's not, it's not like this dirty world. And it's interesting because many of the religions and the worldviews have that view of the earth. Um, the perspective of Islam, actually Islam has a, an origin story with, with God in the garden, with Adam and Eve, but that when they sinned, they were not sent out of the garden, they were sent down to earth. And so earth is the place where God is not. It is hell. And so hell must be ordered and organized under the rule of God if it's ever going to get to heaven again. That is why the, the geopolitical movement is so important because this place is hell and it needs to be reclaimed and, and turned and all of these things and beings need to come under the rule of Allah and then it can go back up to heaven. Or perhaps in the Eastern religions and, and Buddhism, which is not a religion, Hinduism, which is, there, there are various views on what is the earth. And some would say it's actually invisible. Like there's, it's not real. Or it's not invisible. It's, it's an illusion. It's not real. It, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a projection of our own ideas. Or some would say it is real, but it's shape-shifting. It's always moving. You can't actually pin it down. And in Buddhism, the, the goal of meditation um, uh, Siddhartha, who was a Hindu, actually said, you know what, the problem is, is, is pain and pleasure. And so if we can learn to meditate, and, and he saw problems with the caste system, and he saw problems with all kinds of things, and he said, well, if we can meditate and somehow separate ourselves from what is going on in the world, the goal of meditation is to detach, it is to disconnect, because the world is inherently sort of evil, and like Dave talked last week, full of chaos, full of conflict. And so we might think, oh, is that what Jesus means when he says, oh, my kingdom's not of this world? I think the key is, like, what, is he, what did he mean when he said of? He did not mean my kingdom's not in this world because we know when he taught the disciples to pray, what did he say? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He said, no, my kingdom is not it's in this world, but it's not like the kingdoms of this world. Get that? Oh, it's very earthly, but it's not the way you think. It is not like the stuff that you can see and touch and say, oh, that's a kingdom, that's a king, that's what power looks like, that's what ethnic identity looks like, that's what religious freedom looks like, that's what political independence looks like. He said it's something different. <laughs> and then we read in the, in the gospel accounts, Jesus living out the values of the kingdom and what he began to do and how he began to treat people and what he taught and how he lived. And really, he said this, this is the kingdom. Power is serving others, not self. Wealth is relationships, not riches. Sin is the enemy, not people. This is the life of Jesus and saying, what does the kingdom of Jesus mean? Power is serving others, not self. Wealth is relationships, not riches. And sin is the enemy, not people. In fact, we are even meant to love our enemies. Friends, the church, as someone once said, 
is a foreign embassy, an embassy in a foreign land. We are a community of people in a place, very much in a place, but not like the place. Jesus, as he came to earth, began to live and teach and said, if you have power, it is not for yourself, it is to be used in the service of others. And in the kingdom of Jesus, people are more valuable than possessions. And you may think that the person against you is your enemy, but sin is the human problem and we're meant to love each other. Sin is the enemy, not people. And he began to live that out. And we, as the church, are the embassy in a foreign land that represents the kingdom of Jesus in the kingdom of this world. We are not a lifeboat attached to a Titanic saying, guys, it's going to hell, get in as fast as you can. Which is, in many ways, how the church has viewed itself in the world. This is all evil. It's all sinking. Get saved, get saved. And Jesus says, no, the kingdom is good news to the people of this earth. It is not like the kingdoms of this earth, but it is very much in the earth. There is a now, there is a not yet. There is a one day when the kingdom of Jesus, when these ways of dealing with power and people and riches and sickness and pain and conflict will all be healed. There is a one day coming, but for now, you are the embassy of this kingdom in a foreign land. In a sense, it is the only worldview, if you think about it, that recognizes and says, yeah, you know what, this accumulation of wealth and pleasure, it's not enough. It's too low of a purpose. And yet it says, but we dig in into this world. We are very much in and around all of the people in this world who think that their only purpose in life is the accumulation of wealth or goods or happiness or abuses of power, we say, no, we, we don't agree with that, but we are in it. We are with you. We are for you. It's the only worldview, in a sense, that everybody else in the world, even if they don't follow Jesus, should want the followers of Jesus to do, right? Like, everybody should want people to be like that and how they handle power and how they think about and valuing people over possessions and to not see others as the enemy that the whole world should want the church to wake up and be like that and to embrace that kingdom. Now, I have friends who are atheists who would say, yeah, I agree with those values. And I often say to them, and I have, I know you do because it's in you. You just didn't get there from your atheist worldview. It actually, there's something inside you that says that is right. You know, if the atheist worldview, the naturalist worldview says, we got here because the strong dominated the weak, but there's something in me that says, if I am strong, I should help the weak, that didn't come from natural selection. That came from the kingdom of God inside you. There's something inside you that knows it's right to use power in the service of others. There's something inside you that knows that people are more valuable than possessions. There's something inside you that knows there's something in me that isn't right, and the true enemy is not the other person. Is something that's actually infected us all. It is the kingdom inside you, Jesus says. It is in you. Um, normally, we have another stool up here where I would invite someone to come up and have a conversation with me about this. He's actually serving in nursery today, so we filmed it earlier. Uh, his name is Malcolm, and his story is about this question of purpose and how it led him to Jesus. So just have a listen. So Malcolm, um, 
Tell me a little bit about your faith journey, kind of where it started, what was your faith background, and how did this whole question of purpose and why am I here, how did that drive your journey and as you attempted to try to answer it for yourself? Yeah, good. I think if I were to describe sort of my family of origin and sort of our beliefs, I would say Dave's sort of category from last week about sort of things being unknowable, about sort of origins, purpose, et cetera, I'd say that's a good description of my family. They would say, okay, functionally we grew up atheist, but I think even more than that, it was these questions are not the questions that are important in life. Um, I'd say for me, the question of like purpose and why are we here was always something that like I wrestled with. Like you struggle with, like everybody struggles with difficulties in our lives. And again, I think I've had a pretty sort of blessed life, first world problems, all that. But but I would say there is this sense of, okay, as you run into difficulties, like, like why continue to exist? Like, why should we continue to be here was was something that I wrestled with. And what's the meaning of all of this? And what's the meaning, like kind of going, okay, I can see the negative impact I'm having on the planet. I can see sort of all the pain and suffering that everybody's sort of experiencing, like, why like why continue in that um and and i think as i began to go to university i ended up because i was my passion was sort of studying sort of european studies arts literature history a big part of my studies was the first half of the 20th century and a lot of the people i was reading were wrestling with all of the difficulties of the first and second world wars and just all the pain and devastation and if you look at like franz kafka albert camus jean paul sartre I think their basic answer would be, um, look, life is crap. Like there's all this pain and suffering, but there is no broader meaning. Like Camus said, hey, like this is a set essentially absurd. Yeah. Life is absurd. There's nothing more than this. And there's no capital and meaning or reason. It's just is absolutely. It is. Yeah. And I think for me, my wrestle was, I'm like, okay, something needs to be true but that just doesn't sit right with me. That that doesn't feel true to me. Yeah. So um, I'm like, okay, what do I do with this? As I began to sort of, I think, get more involved at university, began to get sort of move in, I, what I began to experience is, hey, as we begin to, to do things that have an impact beyond ourselves, sort of caring for others, um, again, contributing to, in whatever sort of abstract way you feel like, I'm contributing to something bigger than myself. Yeah. That feels good, and I think there's a sense of purpose in going, hey, if I can have a positive impact here, then maybe that's where I can draw purpose from. Yeah, and I think a lot of people come to that conclusion, right? Saying, well, I guess, you know, make a difference in the world, leave it better than when you found it, yeah. um, find out, you know, your unique shape and, and help the world be a better place. And I think that's that's really good. Like, I'm yeah. like, okay, what, what I began to experience as I sort of leaned into that and sort of walked through that more was... Um, I, I described this idea of like utilitarianism as like, okay, maximize your positive impact is it begins to be a little bit of a balance sheet exercise where you go, okay, I can sort of sketch out the ways so like I was, I was rude to the guy at work or sort of here's my sort of carbon footprint or I'm aware of sort of the, the, the way sort of the, the people who made my clothes were treated in that manufacturing going, okay, I can see all that negative. Well, then I have to be, if I'm going to make sure I have a net positive, gotta work hard. I got to work hard to, yeah. to balance that out. Um, and as I was doing that, 
I, I guess, like, I began to reach a point where I, I think my only description of Lord is, is sort of a, a breakdown or like a, a realization that there's a weight and a heaviness and a sort of constant striving to achieve sort of standards to, to maximize this impact that, that was exhausting and, and that I couldn't keep up with. And so, you know, have this desire to answer this question, feel like this is, you know, meant to make a difference in the world. And then through a series of events and God working your life, you come to be a follower of Jesus and, yeah. and, and experience his invitation, not only of salvation, but also into his kingdom. Mm -hmm. What happened for you when you encountered Jesus with this whole journey of purpose? Yeah, I think one of the things was, was the realization that a lot of the things that, that were sort of my heart's cry in terms of um, sort of caring for the environment, sort of human rights, um, again, social justice for the marginalized, all of those things I'd say, actually, like I see Jesus being the model, being in a lot of ways the source for the views that I held and, and going, okay, so there's a level of affirmation of almost... This is true. This is true. This thing that I've been pursuing is, is true. And I think that truth was, I think, a very important element as I'm like, okay, it can't just be some opiate for the masses. Hey, this is going to be something that makes me feel good. It needs to also be true. But I think... Again, this idea of a personal relationship with Jesus, what, what's transformative for me is if I say Jesus is Lord and that it's his kingdom and his purpose that we're working towards, then it's not on me alone yeah. to make that happen. So that, that ultimately when I say he has risen from the dead, he, has, he is the victor, he has assured that sort of our world will be recreated in the way we all desire and yes i have a responsibility as his ambassador as his follower there's an obedience a response of hey yeah i want to do what you called me to do but it's no longer on me alone mm -hmm. to lead to that outcome mm -hmm. and so i can surrender some of the striving some of the the measuring of of the outcome and i think going okay well if if my worth is ultimately in the way he created me and the fact that I am his creation rather than my worth being in the results. There's a, there's a lightness to being able to, to step in, but step in from a place of, of trust and acknowledgement that, yeah, when I screw up and I do all the time, that he knows that, but he's still chosen to work out his plan through me and through all of us. That's so good. I, I think what I love about that, Mal, is in Jesus, you found both like the invitation and this resonance to this higher life, this higher purpose, and yet with it, a peace that says, that releases you from the guilt and shame of having to do it yourself and say like, we're not the king, like we just represent him. Yeah. And that this is actually an invitation, not only to follow him, but actually to be in a community of people who are building this together. 100%. That's so cool. Well, thanks uh, just for sharing your journey with us uh, as your quest <laughs> to answer this question of purpose. In my pleasure. Join me in it. Isn't that beautiful? It is a picture of how for many of us and maybe many of your friends and maybe some of you here where there, there's something inside of that longing to be in the kingdom and yet realizing I can't do it. 
Why is it that what starts out so well seems to often go awry? Why do my motives tend to sabotage so often what I believe is my pure desire for my relationships in the world that I'm in? It is the kingdom of Jesus within us. You know, a lot of times people look at um, a movement like ISIS and say, see, this is the problem with religion. When it gets fanatical, things go bad. And so our solution is, believe what you want to believe. Just don't be fanatical about it. And maybe that's true for ISIS. The opposite is true for you and I in the kingdom of Jesus. Christianity has always gone wrong when it has not been fanatical enough. And by that I mean when it has not been enough like Jesus. It is the only movement in the world that everyone would want us to be more and more fanatically like our founder. And that if we were more like that, we would be less like what the history and the reputation of the church actually is. It's the one, see that was a mic drop moment. It's the one movement, and you can actually say that to your friends. You say, you know what, the problem with Christianity in the past is it hasn't been fanatical enough. That's a good conversation starter. But that it's actually the more we are like Jesus, the more the rest of the world would go, we're not sure we believe that, but thank you that you do. I would like my daughter to marry your son. I would like to work for you. I would like to go to school with you. That Christians would be the people that even if other people weren't following Jesus would say, I think I'd like to be around you. Because this is what the kingdom is like. And so, my answer to the question of, well, what is my purpose in life? If this is the kingdom, your purpose is to bring it. Bring it. This doesn't actually tell you what job you should do or who you should marry. It just tells you, or even what, you know, what school you should apply for. It just tells you as you apply for that school, as you study that subject, as you do that job, bring the kingdom. Be a person who says, if I have any power or influence at all, it is to be used in the service of others. And in fact, I can serve others even if I have no power at all. It says that in a world where possessions and the acquisition of wealth is growing, 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 we are more aware of what we don't have, I can be someone who says actually people are more valuable than possessions. And that I can be someone who never treats another person like the enemy because I understand that the same stuff that's going on in their life that's messing them up is the same infection of sin that I have. And but for the grace of God, go I. You bring the kingdom wherever you go. This is your purpose in life. It may not tell you when you should get married, but it might tell you the kind of person that you would want to marry is someone who understands that their life is to bring it that the kingdom is something you bring wherever you go, whatever you do. And that therefore, whether you have, if you think about, say, in your school or in your work, like where does this actually land for you? You don't need any power to serve others. If you happen to have it, use it in the service of others. Be someone that other people, whose class they want to be in, whose group they want to be in, whose group they want to work for, but if you don't have any power, you say, I'm the last person anyone looks to. I'm not considered popular in my school. I don't have any title of authority. I have no direct reports. I'm new to the union. No one can stop you from bringing the kingdom of Jesus. Or perhaps if we say, how do we think about the legalization of pot? I'll tell you how I have thought about it this week, which is not like the kingdom of Jesus. What a stupid thing. 
greedy government. Like, I can't believe this. And I was at homecoming this weekend, and I'm telling you, like, the homecoming people thought, like, it, like the, mer the merging of homecoming and the legalization of weed is, like, unreal. And it's easy to go, oh, look, look at this world. Look at all those people who smoke up, or if you're at a work party and someone begins to light up or whatever. Easy for us to go, oh, what does it mean to bring the kingdom of Jesus to the legalization of pot? First of all, it means that we care about people more than policy. What I have said to someone, you know my deep concern with legalization of pot is that we also have an epidemic of anxiety in our world. And I'm concerned that when you bring an epidemic of anxiety with the legalization of pot, we have a lot of people who the only solution we're giving them to deal with their anxiety is to escape. That's a legit question to ask your friend who smokes up a lot to say, hey, bro, do you feel like you need to escape from stuff? That's a conversation because you care about the person more than the policy. And that if you are a person of influence, your goal is not to campaign for different government. Your goal is to say, I'm going to pray for the government we have, and how do I use what I have in the service of those who are in desperate need? And what does it mean to say pot is not a sin, or is the sin, or neither is the government, or, or, or the enemy? That sin is. That there's something in us that wants to escape the world we're in rather than lean into it. That there's something in us that doesn't know how to deal with the failures in ourselves or the failures in the world around us. And we say, okay, that's not the enemy sin is. How do I love people in the middle of this? It's way more complicated, isn't it? We just drift towards religion because we just want easy answers. Just tell me what to do. Just tell me how to think about this. Tell me, you know, I don't want to have to think through. And Jesus says, no, wherever you are, bring my kingdom. It's not of this world, but it is right in this world. And if you're a high school student and you have friends and you're at a party and they start smoking up, um, don't smoke up. Don't run out of the room unless it's really small and the windows are closed. <laughs> Talk to them. I was out with my friends last night and they said, Beach, like, I didn't drink during university. It was a good decision. Um, they said, how did, you, like, how did you put up with us? And they're people I love. Like, and we spent hours talking about everything. So, you know, we love being with you, even though, like, we were totally smashed. And you never judged us, and you loved us. And I said, I was just having a fun time. They're like, yeah, you didn't need, you just seemed to be drunk, but you weren't. You know, I don't know what that was. Like, you loved life. And I'm like, yes, I do. It's the kingdom of Jesus in that place. And I tell them the best conversations I had was when they were two or three beers in. And suddenly they want to really talk about the meaning of life. And so, friends, before we run away, because we don't know what to do with this earth that is so broken, we have to say, Jesus, how do you bring, how do I bring your kingdom here in this place? Why would you live like this? It's way harder. It's easier to just become like everybody else or run away. Why would you live like this? Why would you say, what does the kingdom of Jesus have to say? How do I bring this where I live? You were born for this. It's inside you. You actually know it. The way we begin to actually experience the fullness of who we were made to be is when we say, okay, Jesus, how do I bring your life into this? And the more we do it, the more we find, 
I was made for this. Whether I love my school or I hate it, whether I love my job or I hate it, I was made for this. I was made to bring it. Can we say that together? On the count of three, I was made to bring it. One, two, three. I was made to bring it. No, but you guys say the bring it part loud, okay? Lenny, right? I was made to bring it. Yes, let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you that you are who you are. I thank you that your kingdom is not like this world, that you offer us and show us something so different, so beautiful, so much harder. Help us as a community of people to know what it is to bring your kingdom into our school, into our neighborhood, into our workplace, into our family. Not with a pride and a self-righteousness that we have it all together and we know what's right and what's wrong. But in a way that we follow the one who recognized that sin was the enemy, not people. And that people were far more valuable than possessions. And that if we have any power at all, it becomes beautiful in the service of others. God, help us to be an embassy, ambassadors of this kind of kingdom, which I believe the world desperately needs. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.